What, a, what an awesome morning to be together. Um, I'm so grateful to be, to be joining with you all as a church. And it's dependent on the Spirit of God that I speak this. So, so help me God. But I want, I want to start by asking you to think about this. That you and I, all of us here, we're here today because of a series of events leading up to the 5th of April, 33 AD. A series of events leading up to the 5th of April, 33 AD. What happened then? Well, apparently, there was a man, an uneducated, an unmarried man who lived in a rural area outside of the capital city, and he began to gain a following. The word on the street was that there were people who were oppressed, there were people who were hurt, who had received healing, who had been set free. And they began to follow his teachings. And his, his teachings were, they were controversial. He spoke with a, a sense of authority that was unprecedented. He said things like, you have heard it said unto you by God, but I now say to you. Or things like the greatest among you must become a servant. The first shall be last. Love your enemies. And this began to cause a ruckus. It began to cause a stir. And this man, he began to make his way on foot to the capital city. People knew he was coming. And a week before the 5th of April, there was a sort of quasi-welcome party. A parade as he entered the city. People were happy to see him, but not everybody was happy to see him. Not everyone. Why? Because he went into the city, he went to the temple, and he caused a ruckus. He called the religious leaders rebels. He began to challenge their long-held traditions. He claimed things for himself that only God should claim of himself. He said things that were unacceptable then, offensive, dangerous. And it wasn't just the religious leaders who had a problem, it was also the political leaders. Because the authority that this man claimed for himself became a challenge then, an affront to their authority. And so the religious leaders teamed up with the political leaders and they held a quasi-trial. And at that trial, they managed to convince the people that this man's words were violence and his life needed to be terminated. So the procurator, Pontius Pilate, sentenced him to execution. The method of execution was death on a Roman cross. The charge written over his head, this is Jesus, king of the Jews, three languages. And like thousands crucified before him, he died. And that was about the 3rd of April, 33 AD. Roman, Greek, and Jewish historian sources, they all record this event. It's one of the most sure facts of history. But we're here today because of the event that happened next. Nobody saw this coming. That three days later, this man reverted back to life. That his followers who at first didn't believe, he talked to them. He allowed them to, to touch him. He ate with them. People who were skeptics, then we're claiming to have an encounter with a risen 
Jesus. And so the word began to spread and people asked, is this fake news or is this good news? That the man from rural Galilee was actually king, God of the whole world. And that his resurrection had reversed death itself and ushered in a whole new way of living, of being human in right relationship, reconciliation with God, in light, with hope, with purpose, with freedom. And so wherever his followers went, they brought this news. And the ripple became a wave And first tens, then hundreds, then thousands, then millions, then billions believed until the events of April 5th could not be ignored. They cannot be ignored. Because if you want to know what is happening around the world today, you need to understand what has happened. These events demand a good explanation. And by good explanation, I mean a good explanation opposed to a lame one. Um, My wife, Sandra, overheard a sort of uh, quirky conversation this week. She was in Salvation Army shopping, and there was two guys there. And one pulled a shirt off the shelf, a baggy white shirt, and he said, I like this. I think I could wear it. His friend looked over and said, you just like that because you want to look like Jesus. He said, no, I don't want to look like Jesus. I want to look like a wizard. Jesus was just a lame wizard. (laughs) Now, I know this is quirky, right? But this, I guess, is a possible explanation that the resurrection of Jesus was a sort of a one-off magic trick, lame. But certainly those who who, who witnessed the resurrection, they didn't consider it lame. They didn't consider it one-off. It had long-standing, ongoing implications. So what did it mean for them? What, what gives? Well, for that, we're going to get into our text. And the account that we're looking at today is from the biography, the Gospel of John. And it's framed through the experience of a woman named Mary Magdalene. Not, not, not Mary, the mother of Jesus. They were friends. They knew each other. Also not the Mary Magdalene from the Da Vinci Code. That's a novel. It's based on conjecture. No, but this is the Mary as recorded in the first century. This is This is Mary, the disciple of Jesus. So let's get into our text. Uh, John 20 and verse 1 tells us that Mary sets out to the tomb on the first day of the week. And um, it's Sunday. uh, It's early morning. Uh, It was probably, uh, well, it says it was dark as she set out to make her way uh, to the tomb. And she's going there to meet the other women who have spices to wrap the body of Jesus. And the purpose of the spices was uh, both a form of honor, but also to keep the smell down. Um, And on the way, we read elsewhere that the women are wondering, like, how are we going to get that stone out of the way? Maybe they're wondering, too, are the guards still there? But Mary arrives at the tomb. She actually probably arrives at the tomb first, And she's shocked because as she peers through the darkness, she can see that the stone has been rolled away and a gaping black hole is there. She goes, she stoops down and she peers. And as her eyes adjust to the darkness, there's no smell of death. And the bench on which the body was to lay is empty. 
Imagine how that would feel for you. You're going to visit the grave of a loved one and you find it dug up, the coffin open. What would you feel? How outrageous, right? How like, what? Like confusing. How hurtful. Who, who would do that? What do you do? And so Mary does what we would do. She runs back. She tells the disciples, the people who, who had cared and who had loved Jesus too. She breathlessly tells them that, that somebody has moved the body. She says, they've taken the, the Lord out of the tomb and I don't know where they have laid him. Now notice here that Mary makes the same conclusion that you and I would make based on what she had seen, that, that somebody took the body. You know, I don't know how they did it. I don't know how they got past the guards or the stone, but somehow they, they did. In other words, Mary isn't expecting a miracle. And sometimes today, we think we're smart enough to know that resurrections don't happen back, back then. These things sort of caught on more easily. They were very primitive, very gullible. But, but you don't need modern science to tell you that dead people don't rise from the dead. You don't need like a Newton or an Einstein to tell you that. No, no. Mary is just as shocked as we would have been. She isn't expecting anything out of the ordinary. And so Mary informs Peter and John, well, all the disciples, what's happened. But Peter and John, they're like, nah, they don't believe this. And so they decide to go check it out for themselves. But why don't they believe Mary's report? Well, context. In the ancient world, the testimony of woman was not considered reliable. This is what you need to know. Josephus, he was a historian who lived at the time, and he, re- he refers to people that we've seen, like Pontius Pilate, but also James, the brother of Jesus, John the Baptist, Jesus himself. But he also writes this. But let not the testimony of woman be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex. This is a sort of women are so emotional thing you can't trust them. <laughs> I know. Or the Jewish Talmud. Any evidence which a woman gives is not valid. And yet despite these prejudices, every account we have of the resurrection for the first witnesses is of women. And so if the disciples, if they were going to make a conspiracy that, you know, Jesus rose from the dead, they wouldn't, if they wanted to gain credibility, if they wanted the story to fly, they wouldn't base it on the evidence or testimony of women. And yet they do. And so this is pointing towards something, isn't it? So here you have these male disciples who don't believe the woman, and off they go to the tomb, and they're running neck to neck. And I'll read it, 20, uh, John 20 and 3. So Peter went out, with the other disciple, and they're going towards the tomb, both of them running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him, and he went into the tomb. Why do you think it mentions that John ran faster than Peter? (laughs) Like, is John bragging? He wrote this, right? Is Is he bragging? But, but then you have Peter, who is more daring than John. How embarrassing if he, he wrote it. And then you have both of them who are stooping to look into the tomb. Why get these three random details? Well, archaeologists tell us that tombs 
from that time in that place would have been about 36 inches high, about a meter in height. And so you would have had to, to stoop to get in. See, this is what scholars call veracity. That if you were writing from another time in another place, if this was a mythological development, you would get these details wrong. Right? Rather, Richard Bauckham's New Testament scholar, he says it's written this way because it's eyewitness testimony to what really happened. So what does Peter see then when he goes into the tomb? Verse 6. It says that he goes in and he sees uh, the, the linen clothes lying there on the bench. And then off to the side, he sees the linen cloth that covered Jesus' head folded in a place by itself. And so Peter's in there, and he's probably like, no way. Like, shivers. What has happened? Like, when that guy Lazarus got up, when he resuscitated, there was like head-to-toe grave clothes attached to him. But this, but this, John, come check this out. And so John comes in, verse 8, the other disciple, that's John, he, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But what did John believe? There's a clue. It's the folded linen. Um, I've had uh, friends that have been robbed before. One of the first indications that you've been robbed, you come home and your house is like, it's a mess. (laughs) Um, And you could kind of say it like this, that robbers, they don't clean up after themselves. They don't take time to fold the linens. And so John saw that this grave was no robbery scene. The only thing valuable in it, the linen had been left. And so what does he believe? Well, it's not altogether clear. Certainly he believed in Mary now that, well, the body is gone. But maybe he got to wonder if something more incredible had happened. But was it a resurrection? Didn't the Jewish people all just sort of believe in these things, these resurrections? Well, no, not like this. Some Jews believe that at the end of time, that God would resurrect all people to judgment. And then God would set the world aright under his rule and reign. But that was only at the end of time. But this is something, this kind of idea would have been in the middle of time. It was out of scope. It was was. It was off time. It's, it's sort of like a piece of the future in the present. It's a, a sort of back to the future thing. It's completely unthinkable. It was not something in mind. And so confused, Peter and John, they head home. But how do you, how do you interpret the empty tomb? Well, quickly, There's something called the swoon theory. There's a few options. The idea in this is that Jesus didn't die, just look like he died. But it's riddled with problems. The Romans were especially good at killing people. Crucifixion was one of the tried and true methods of it. And Jesus' death was very public. He was pierced through, torn up, bled out. And the idea of three days of that, and he's going to just walk, like, better? No. It's unthinkable. Or maybe, maybe like Mary, right? Somebody moved the body. But then who would do that? Would the Romans do that? They had set guards at the tomb. This is an affront to their power. No, it was the, the Jews. No, they wanted this thing done, dead, gone. Well, was it the disciples? Well, what would their motives have been? 
there's a couple things I could say here. First is that throughout the, the biographies of the disciples, they're, they're portrayed as cowards. They betray, they flee, they hide. They're scared of the Roman state. It's, it's the women who stick around. And so if the disciples are trying to, to raise their status, this is not how they would tell an account. They wouldn't portray themselves this way. The other piece is that liars make bad martyrs. Many of the disciples, we know from history, that they died under extreme pressure to renounce this, and yet none of them did. Many people, true, have died for good causes, but for a cause they knew wasn't true? So how do you interpret the empty tomb? How do you interpret this? I want you to to just wrestle with this for a second. Because Mary did. She's there, she's, she's weeping, she's mourning. Uh, verse 9 through 13 tells us that as she's there, she stoops down to look into the tomb. And she sees something incredible. She sees there's two men in there. Or are they men? The angels, how did they get there? They're in dazzling white. One is at the head of the bench, one at the end. And they turn to him to say, woman, why are you weeping? Say, because they've taken the body of Jesus and I don't know where they've laid him. You see, Mary, the only hope that she has to cling to, the only thing she has to hold on to is the dead body of Jesus. And it's gone. This is the Mary who had been afflicted tormented by deep oppression. And then Jesus came to her and set her free from that oppression, cast out seven demons. This is the type of person that would have been in a mental institution in our society. And yet Jesus was the one who set her free. Jesus is the one who forgave her of sins. And so who else had she to turn to? The disciples, maybe they'd be able to like pull things back together, go back to their families, restart fishing and whatever else they did. But Mary, who did she have to go to? Her only hope was in the dead body of Jesus, and it's gone. And so she's confused, and she's hurt, and she's weeping. She turns around, and there's a man that's come up behind her. And in the early night of dawn, it looks, is is that the gardener? And he asks that same question, woman, why are you weeping? But he adds to it, who are you looking for? She says, thinking he's the garden wall. If you took him, tell me where you put him so I can care for him. That question, what are you seeking? Who are you looking for? In the original Greek, it's much more than just looking for something that's lost. The question is actually, what are you desiring? See, Mary, she was right to put her hope in Jesus. She was wrong to put her hope in a dead Jesus. Her desires were too weak. And like Mary, how many of us are putting our hope in dead things? There's a statement in the biblical book of Ecclesiastes that God has placed eternity in our hearts. And that because we're made for eternity, that when we put hope in things that are temporary, it cannot possibly sustain us. That things like career and success, they will ultimately let you down. That if you don't make it, you'll be crippled by the despair of your own inability. And if you do make it, 
You'll never stop working, always trying to maintain that success you've achieved, worried that somebody will find you out as a fraud. Or place your hope in riches and you'll find yourself more impoverished than ever. You'll, you'll pinch and you'll hoard and you'll swindle and you'll clamor until there's nothing left of you but your account statement. Or place your hope in comfort and you'll find yourself more agitated than ever. You'll build towers around yourself You'll shield yourself away from reality until there's no one left at the end but you. And only then and only then will you realize that the source of distress was actually inside. Place your hope in friends and family in a spouse. And you'll find that it's a burden they can't bear. Good things, yes, gifts. But ultimate hope in them. A burden that crushes them. Dependency on them ruining the ones we love. And so don't place your hope. You cannot place your hope on dead things, but we all do it. We need something that isn't temporary. We need something that can fulfill us, something that can sustain us, an eternal source to life itself. We need someone who said, I am the resurrection in the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And this is the person that Mary has encountered. And the man standing there says her name, Mary. She says, Rabboni, which means teacher. And this is the Jesus, this is Jesus. This is the one that she's been looking for, not a dead body, but alive, a flesh of bone. And Jesus calls her by name. When I was young, really young, back when phones used to have those just big numbers on them, no caller ID. And my dad used to travel a bit for work, and sometimes he would call home, and I'd pick up the phone, and he, he didn't have to say, he, he'd just say, hello, Jordan. I instantly recognized his voice when he said my name. Or in contrast, you, you know that anxiety you have. You, you answer the phone, and the person just starts talking to you. You don't know who it is. See, Jesus, he has a personal relationship with Mary, such that he calls her name, And she recognizes his voice. And Jesus calls each one of our names. Do you recognize his voice? Or have you drowned it out by comfort and success and wealth and and family, whatever it is, right? See, these aren't bad things, but they can't sustain us. They can't be our life. They can't be our hope. You see, when Christians, when they talk about sin, They're not talking about so much wrong deeds, but wrong dependencies, wrong forms of sustenance that we go to to created things instead of the creator looking for life. But dead things can't give you life. They can't sustain you. It's easy for us to look at Mary Magdalene and be like, she was hopeless. You know, there's no way that she could set herself free. She was tormented by darkness and she literally needs something stronger than the forces of hell to set her free, a social outcast, someone today maybe in an asylum. But the Christian message is that we are no better than her. That we need Jesus just as much as Mary needed Jesus. That unless God intervenes, 
we are helpless, we are hopeless, and that we need a living hope. And that's exactly who Jesus is. And he intervened. He took on our sin. He passed through hell on our behalf and he overcame it. He was stronger than the forces of hell. And so you can trust him with your life and you can trust him with your death. Why? Because Easter says that he has been there and he's the only one to come back alive and tell us about it. And so he can be your living hope, but will you let him? Will you let him be the living hope in your life, the one that is the sustenance of your life, the one that you draw on to sustain you, the one who can set you free from the power of sin, the one that can lead you through death to the other side. Though he die, yet shall he live. This is the one that Mary found. And so Jesus tells Mary, don't cling to me. Rather, cling to this. Cling to life with God. Go, go and tell the disciples this, that I'm going to, to my father and your father, to our God, to my God and your God. You catch that? Because up until this point, it's always been my father. But now it's your father. That the intimacy between Jesus and the father has now been extended to us through his life, death, and resurrection. It's offered to us. And so that you can know him and he can call you by name and you will hear his voice and recognize him and know him. And that's what it's all about. What more is there to live for than that, that you can know God, that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that you can enter into the divine life of God, that he has made a way into his holy presence. Life itself. But this is only true, of course, if the resurrection happened. It's only true if it happened. And as we move to close, you might be wondering something like this. Did it, did it really happen, Jordan? Did Jesus really physically rise from the dead? N.T. Wright uh, has this illustration that I thought was helpful. He says that for many people, believing in the resurrection is like driving. And you round a corner and you see that in the road, there's a gap. There's a giant river cutting the road in two. And across that river of resurrection belief, on the other side, you see cars parked. And you wonder, how on earth does a rational person ever, ever actually cross to the other side of the river of resurrection belief? How did they ever get there? My answer is, like Mary and so many of us, that it's an encounter with the risen Jesus. Yes, the evidence is compelling, but it can only tell you what is. It cannot actually transform you. See, Christianity, it does not call you to a blind trust. No, but it does, yes, call you to faith. But it's a faith in the light of the evidence. It's a faith that will, that will carry you from the riverbank of doubt to the riverbank of belief. And so if this is your question, if you're wondering this, then let this be my challenge to you, that the resurrection is the foundation of the Christian 
worldview. This is what Paul sets it up on. Our, that our, faith, our faith rises and falls on this claim. And so did it really happen? Right? As opposed to that lame wizard uh, thing, what is your good explanation for who Jesus is and what happened on the 5th of April, A.D. 33. Look into it. I want you to study it. But remember to, to ask God into that process because he alone can take you across that river. <clears throat> and now I want to move into a time of response. My desire is that this place will be a house of worship in which we celebrate a victory that is greater than any victory in hockey or football or even a world war. That this is a victory over sin, death, and hell itself. And so I want this area here to be a place of worship, a place of celebration. I want you to feel free to come down and pour yourself out in thanksgiving to God for what he's done, to celebrate, to intercede on behalf of our city. But there's one more thing I, uh, I also want to add. And this, actually, this actually kept me up pretty much all night. That for those of you who are Christians in this room, there's something in this text that acts, this absolutely it struck me, it wrecked me. If you read the various gospel accounts, you'll notice that when Mary comes to the tomb in the morning, well, it's, it's kind of like, what time is it? In John, it says it's dark. In the others, it says it's light. But what you find, it's, it's at the cusp of dawn. It's when the light of dawn is, is breaking through. Okay. And at the beginning of John, it says that Jesus is the word by which the world is made. And what you find out is that on this first day of the week, Jesus is the word by which the world is now remade. That he is the first fruit of the new creation, that the the whole world is going to be resurrected like he was. And he's the first little bit of it. He's the deposit. He's the guarantee. But the question for you that racked me is, are you walking in that Are you walking in the light of his resurrection? Because notice when Jesus is resurrected, he left those burial clothes behind, folded away. But when Lazarus was resurrected, he's up, he's walking, but he's bound from head to toe. How many of us still have burial clothes clinging to us? Jesus calls us to lay aside the sin that so easily besets us. Don't put your hope in dead things. Stop living like dead people. The the whole point of the resurrection, right, is that Jesus has dealt with whatever is clinging to you, that God has forgiven it, it is done. So now live in it. Walk in the freedom that he has given you. Ephesians 5.14 says, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. And so if that's you this morning, I want you also to feel free. It's a place of worship. It's a place of intercession down here. That confess your sins. His grace is extended towards you. And so I want to pray for you, if that's you. And we'll respond. Lord,
we need you. We need your light to move. We need your spirit to convict. We need your power to roar. Jesus, I pray that as you spoke over Lazarus, that you would speak over us, spirit of the living God, unbind him, loose him, and let him go free. Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, for Christ has shone. Jesus, awake us to the reality of your resurrection. May we walk in the fullness of life that it brings. And may our hearts overflow in praise and rapture for what you have done for us. We don't deserve it at all. In Jesus' name, amen.